Welcome back to Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, chapters 34 to 38. And of course, this is Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron. I'm sorry, I was reading from my notes there. Back with me are my astute colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wes Shantz. Welcome back, you two. Great to be here. Greetings. Cheers. Greetings. Cheers. And so I suppose the best way to start a, a podcast is in the same way that it's best to start a seminar with a question or with a mystery that we set out to be solved. And in the pre-show, Sarah, you had sort of brought up one of the earlier chapters that we read, the Department of Mysteries, and what the concept of a myth, and you had asked what, what you know, the concept of mystery even means to magical folk who seem to themselves be a mystery to muggles. And so I thought we might talk a little bit about the prophecies we found there, um, about what is studied in the Department of Mysteries, and really just giving some thought to that question of what, what are the mysteries of the magical world. Did you want to lead with that, uh, Sarah, or we can always defer to Wes? I mean, deferring to Wes is almost always better. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I, I'm really interested, I think, in the various rooms that they find um, and like what con and how um, they are affected by those rooms. Uh, I think there's a Death Eater that's affected by by one of the um, one of the things that's housed in one of the rooms. There seem to be like a dozen rooms, um, one of which is prophecies, one of which seems to be death, um, like with the veil, one of which seems to be knowledge or wisdom one of which seems to be time i think we're told that um there's something in the department of mysteries that studies love um i i just i think um i don't know it's, it's kind of cool to think that there's one place where all of these mysteries are explored um and i think it's also kind of cool that those are mysteries like in our world right we um it doesn't mean you can't study them and learn things about them, right? But like, like the mind, uh, time, love, death, you know, um, this, this magical world is equally perplexed by some like kind of universal human realities or constructs or experiences. And um, I just, I think that that's, that's kind of cool. I think we were saying in the pre-show that, you know, there's some pretty heavy shit in, in these, final few paragraphs or final few chapters that like um and I don't know that's sort of what I what I was intrigued by is that just that there's a place where there's almost like the essence of these mysteries and there are the unspeakables who work down there and who study them all day I think that's kind of cool yeah I, I I think the the minds as being like, like literally brains in a vat uh, is, is actually maybe all of them are actually also a little kind of funny like there's something humorous about each of the mysteries to me at least um, part of that is you know taking the idea like this kind of philosophical like, thought experiment about the brain in a vat and then like making it a literal thing there and then having the, <laughs> them start to attack you um, Ron goes a little funny in the head at some point so so there's like this contagious element to the to the laughter that's sort of like bubbling under the surface there. Um, there there's also like Bellatrix her her weird um, attitude towards everything and and it even seems to affect Sirius where in his last moments like what he's saying is 
is a taunt or something like that. And so there's just something interesting about the the tone of these chapters. I think it is heavy, but it's it's almost trying to kind of like stave off melodrama through elements of humor, which I think are pretty interesting and, and actually kind of successful. Just starting from like the rescue mission that they get um, as their name badges when they start going in. Yeah, could you comment a little bit more about the, uh, because I had never thought about it in this way, um, the, um, the concepts that are explored through their embodiments in the room. So you said there were the brains, uh, which actually had literal tendrils, and we hear later from Madame Pomfrey that thoughts can hurt you. Um, and uh, that's for sure. As I was teaching in Dante today, I was essentially teaching that the truth, the, the problem with truth is that it can dispel harmony, and that that was part of the message of Adam leaving the Garden of Eden, according to Dante in Canto 26 of the Paradiso, that when you go beyond your normal bounds, you disrupt the harmony of your current life, but you do learn something that you long for, perhaps even more than harmony, but that that is the cost. Um, and so I think that's it's- That's awesome. That's, yeah. I was just gonna say, that's exactly what we talked about in my class today on our seminar and all my sons. So that's incredible. Great, okay, that, great minds think alike. I'm, that is, yeah, well, you're giving me higher praise than I deserve, but uh, I, you know, kingly praise. Miss Sarah Miller, thank you. And I'm glad that uh, y'all's kids are getting the same thing. And I'm glad, I'm glad to have that correspondence too, because you know sometimes I say these things and I have no idea whether anybody in the world will agree with them. And so that's great. <laughs> but um, so the brains and the bats were studying the mind, you say. And then of course we have the time chamber where the Death Eaters <laughs> continues to turn from a baby into a person like there's a repetitive element in it mm -hmm. sort of a hellish sisyphean mm -hmm. element that the time turners then keep falling and then going back together sort of like the story of the old testament and like sort of the rises and falls there um or whatever metaphor you choose and um so what were the other ones wes and sarah and uh what it, what did their specific embodiments mean mean to you um because that that's that's very much piquing my interest as well well, I, I like what you said, Wes, about like the kind of funny way in which some of it's delivered. Like y you're yeah. right that like the, the, the way they get in and like the, uh, the strange automated voice that's treating them and this entire experience, like it's just another visitor, um, is, is funny. And I absolutely like Ron is funny and the Death Eater kind of becoming a baby is funny. But I think there's one that to me stands out as not funny. Um, and it's not, um, I mean, it's, it's quite grave, um, but it's also, it's not um, complex, right? It's just that stone amphitheater where there's like a, a veil at the bottom, um, an archway that yes. um, Harry is really attracted to. Um, and, uh, Luna hears voices behind it just as much as Harry does, which is, you know, kind of a clue that there's something that the two of them share, just like the two of them can see the festrals. And it's because of what they've experienced in their lives and who they've lost and how they've been so close to loss that they can, they're sort of like oddly attracted to it, which again, when Harry is being like possessed by Voldemort and he says he just wants to die, but like that has got yes. to be, no worse than the pain that he's feeling. Um, 
And it's funny, like his willingness to die, his attraction to it in some ways is a power rather than like being afraid of it. Um, and it's something he doesn't quite totally understand. And it's this, it's the archway where there's the final battle. It's my least favorite thing about the, the movie is because I think, I think that the scene where the kids find the space um, before the battle takes place in there is so important. Um, and I, I, I just, um, that's to me is like the one mystery that isn't kind of dealt with in a way that's a little hokey. I mean, maybe it is a little hokey. I don't know, but it seems really stripped of, of silliness and this idea that like, the mystery of death is that it's really just this really fine but defined liminal moment, right? Where, um, you know, you were a zero and now you're a one. You were alive and now you're dead. Like there's there's very little um, space in between those two realities. And yet it's absolutely um, untraveled um distance right it's a the undiscovered country it's like you can't you can't get there right it's just um I don't know I, I think that it's a really effective image for something that for the vast majority of the population reading this book it's not going to be something that they've had to or want to think about but what a, a highly effective way of getting people to think about what is what is death and what does it feel like and what does it mean for you and what happens after death? And like, man, 16 is when you start to ask those questions um, and hopefully not sooner because those are really hard questions that you may nearly drive Hamlet insane. Um, and I, I just, I think that that, that to me is not silly. Um, it, it didn't ring silly to me at least. Yeah. And his disbelief, at three different moments, the first of which being at that gate, Harry's disbelief at Sirius's death, and then his disbelief that the gift of Sirius that we talked about last time but couldn't define because Harry didn't know about it yet, is this sort of Beauty and the Beast-esque mirror that shows you the holder of the other mirror. And of course, this plays in again to that interesting James and Sirius, Harry and Sirius dynamic, this brother-father dynamic that Dumbledore outlined so intelligently as uh, Voldemort exploiting in, um, in, the final, in the final chapters. And I also want to talk a little bit about uh, Harry's failures and dragging his friends into danger, but also their willingness to do that. And that, you know, that is, those are their choices and what they trained for. But I agree with you, Sarah, that there, it is the student, uh, you know, Hermione and Ron are very much disturbed when, when they all first enter there. And, you know, Harry, Harry's like, do you hear them? Do you hear them? And Ron, is that you? And Ron says, I'm here, mate. And I really love Ron in that moment. I can see why his Patronus is a dog. Me too. And I, too. I, he's so loyal. I'm here, mate. You know, he's there. He's solid. And, you know, also just to think about it, it's like Harry should, should think about the fact that in his world, his Sirius is still alive. You know, and that's Ron, even though Ron's obviously clumsy and not the, you know, most handsome and gifted uh, wizard in the world. He, you know, he's pretty up there at this point as a prefect and also uh, a Quidditch champion and um, now the eldest Weasley at his school. Um, but, uh, you know, and Hermione's like, there's nothing there, Harry. There's nothing there. Again, having trouble with that sort of ineffable element of the, the wizarding world. 
but also just how Sirius dies into it, how he just disappears behind it. And Harry has that disbelief that, uh, you know, he's going to fall out the other side and he'll see him again. And then no, he's denied that. Uh, and he, he's denied that three times the same way Peter denied Christ three times, but very different effects. Um, but I just, it's so real that disbelief he has and how, even though he's seen death before and it calls to him out from that, that, you know, terrifying specter of it, even scarier, I would say, than Odysseus or, you know, Homer's conception of the gate of horn. Um, it's very Tartarian. It's very, you know, disturbingly minimalist, I would say. Sort of like death is minimal in a way or a minimizing, like you said, a reduction of one to zero. Um, you're off the map and forever, as Achilleus would agree with in, uh, in the Odyssey as well. Um, but um, uh, that's, that's what I wanted. That's only, that's what I wanted to mention before kicking it over to Wes. It's just that I feel like that disbelief in the wake of yet another thing he loves being taken away from him and that pattern being developed in Harry's mind now of things he loves getting killed and taken from him because of Voldemort is, um, uh, I totally resonate with the rage that he throws even at, you know, the, the guy who's his true godfather now, Albus Dumbledore, and he rages at him because he's so close to him, but, and that he, when he doesn't want to be around people, but he does long to be around them, and he can't share how he feels with them, really. He doesn't want to talk about it. Um, that, that and that struggle with death is what really resonated with me. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's not super funny in the death chamber. That's fair, but like, I think that the whole <laughs> chase scene, the whole chase scene that ensues after that, um, does kind of have a certain um, element of slapstick to it. And I think maybe like in contrast, that's why that death chamber has to be so somber, is because when we're back in there, that is sort of the climactic part of that um, that struggle, right? Harry's about to give the prophecy back over. Um, the order shows up you know, and suddenly um, it's a fair fight again. And then you have like, of course, Sirius's uh, fall through the veil. I also think it forms a really interesting juxtaposition with the door, which doesn't open, right? Which is never open, Dumbledore says. And um, uh. so they, they see that right after the veil. It's like, sort of like, I, in terms of what it looks like, it's the opposite, right? It's a door which is sealed, whereas the mm, veil is yeah. a, you can easily walk through. You can you can mm. hear on the other side that there's people whispering, and uh, you know the door. Yeah, so I think you know there's something kind of curious going on there, which wouldn't be as powerful if you didn't come to the door, which doesn't open um, immediately after having seen the uh, arch and the veil in the other room. So I think that um, the way that Hermione also sort of like causes lots of doors to be like the door that doesn't open is kind of cool, right? She has this spell that um, marks doors so they know which one's mm. not to go through, which is like the arch. And of course, like the cross is pretty interesting mm. to use as a, as a mark. Yeah. Um, a fiery cross, right? And then she also does a thing that um, seals doors shut. And, and apparently like just seeing her do that a few times, everyone else learns how to do it. Or maybe Luna knows that spell too anyway. She's going around sealing doors. And, um, and so that's kind of cool, like they're making more love be in the world in a sense, right? By, by sealing off doors and protecting one another. And, and that's all very good. And 
um, but also kind of, well, I mean, again, like slapstick is kind of the word I would use for a lot of the battle scenes, like Neville's feet doing a crazy dance, like <laughs> this, this sort of, and just the sort of um, MacGuffin of having the prophecy be this very fragile object, which, so for that reason, Harry is again, sort of like protected, you know, in, in the same sense that he was the boy who lived. Now he's the boy who can't be hit with anything too powerful because you don't want to break the prophecy because that's the whole point of being mm. there. It's like, it's just very silly. Like, I can't help it. But but yeah, that doesn't undercut too much. Or I think on the contrary, it sort of makes the death of Sirius that much more like sudden, powerful, and yeah, real because that is kind of how, like we're going about our mundane lives. Um, you know, everything's sort of silly and, and lighthearted. And then suddenly, you know, someone you care about dies. Well, that just like, that hits you that much harder because you can't not think about it then. Like you spend a lot of time doing a lot of things to not have to think about serious, weighty, you know, ultimate concerns. And then something yeah. will happen where at your, when you least expect it, it, that person's gone. So then you have to kind of slow down. Um, and time slows down. The way she writes that scene is pretty cool. Like he falls gracefully. Yeah. It's very artful. And uh, and then immediately after that, you get like the other set piece fight, which is pretty pretty rad. So, but yeah, you guys have more thoughts about that, or I I do want to talk about Dumbledore a bit too here. Yeah, well, I I would like to think uh, t talk about the Deus Ex Machina of Dumbledore and that fight between him and Voldemort. And well, Sarah, could you start us off with that? Maybe some of the spells they use, or just his appearance itself and what it symbolizes and how that ties to the Order of the Phoenix, or what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, well, I think Dumbledore is, um, his, his, his appearance, and then obviously the appearance of Fox, um, the Phoenix, I think just are sort of mm -hmm. like a signal. You know, you know what, they remind me of um, a couple moments in The Return of the King, and um, in the Lord of the Rings where, um, and, and maybe that, maybe the parallel is wrong. Maybe what I should be thinking of is the arrival of Gandalf at Helm's Deep, um, at the, mm. in like book three of the two towers, the movie version of this scene is gorgeous, but it's totally textually inaccurate. But just the idea that like with the savior comes light right um and like people recognize mm. like the good people see him like neville is the one to recognize him i think that that's that's to me really significant in a christological way like if if you read the the story through the, this lens that like these characters have analogs or parallel representations in the christ story like um that neville is the one to recognize the arrival of dumbledore is is really significant especially considering that he could have been the chosen one but wasn't um like wasn't picked for some reason i think that's worth exploring but at this point in the story it's just neville and harry right like hermione's down for the count ron is down for the count i'm not really sure where luna and Ginny are and why they're not there but um it's just the two it's like the two kids whose parents gave everything physically and or mentally um to the order who excuse me who are there in this like chamber of death um 
coming. I just, I think that the, the symbolism of that is really remarkable. I, I'm not really sure that I have much to say about um, all of the spells that Dumbledore used, but I, I think it's remarkable that Neville is the one and, and, you know, to the, to the point of the, the kind of silliness of it all, the levity, shall we say, like he can't even really say his name. I think his nose is broken or something. Um, <laughs> so it's a little, like, it's a little bit silly, uh, cinematically light, I guess. But um, his arrival seems, um, seems just sort of out of the clear blue sky, but it is the thing that, like turns the tides, you know, it's like the, the you catastrophe, like, um, the, there's no way that this ends any worse. Right. Um, because he's there. I don't know. What else did you guys want to talk about, about the, the scene? I think we definitely need to talk about his conversation with, with Tom Riddle and like the, 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 there's worse things than death. Um, I think that that is one of the great messages of the entire series is that um, like physical death is not as bad as like moral death, um, uh, especially if you're still living. So, but anyway, yeah, I'll punt it back to you guys. Yeah. I'm interested in what you have to say on that, Wes. Just, I would note that just to the comic element, Neville's wand gets broken in a life or death situation. And obviously his first thought is that his grand is going to kill him. And also, yeah, that uh, tarantula leg, tarantallegro, I think it's called. Tarantula plus allegro, which is, you know, an Italian movement of music that you can dance to. Uh, a sprightly one, apparently. Um, uh, also that he so impotently attempts to stun the Death Eaters, right? He, uh, he I think, has Hermione's wand at that, at that moment. And then he's trying to cast studying spells and nothing literally nothing is happening um but yeah i was i just wanted to note those couple features and then yeah pass it over to you wes for sure yeah i mean i think neville really acquits himself pretty well here all things considered um we we do find out like that he and harry are um equivalent in some sense uh and and that harry uh has been marked by Voldemort, um, it, sort of like in accord with the prophecy, but without knowing the prophecy, apparently. So that's, I mean, pretty interesting. I, I think um, the way that uh, Dumbledore appears and, and Harry like sort of has this moment where he realizes that they're saved, um, that, was, that was really interesting to me, especially given that uh, he, um, is so angry at Dumbledore uh, at the same time, right? And and I wonder if it's that which goes through Tom Riddle's mind when he seems sees Dumbledore too, right? That he's um, that he's saved, and I like that. That's the thing that he can't accept, or something like that, because that's that's what is sort of so confusing to me about the Tom Riddle and Dumbledore relationship is that they seem to have been very much so like the way that harry has a double in neville he has maybe an even stronger double in um lord voldemort aka tom riddle and so i think that when we see things go through harry's mind we can assume pretty safely that something like that is going through voldemort's mind right and it's like their thoughts are very similar their powers are very similar 
what distinguishes them is their feelings or, or their heart, you know. Um, Voldemort has like actively shattered and hidden his, whereas Harry is, you know, proved to be a, a good person, a human being by the way that mm. he feels pain and, and, and suffers. And so, you know, so it's like, it's really interesting to think about like, what's the kind of person who's terrified of, of being saved, right? That's like, to go to the sort of the, the Christological interpretation, like that's, that's the, uh, like the absolute mm. hardcore atheist or something, right? Like you refuse, mm-hmm. um, even when you understand, even when you like, think about deeply and, and maybe even like have moments of what you'd call weakness, right? Where you want to believe or something. You, you just like refuse on principle um, and you fight against, you know, with all your strength because you like have to assert that you are, are the, the more important thing. Um, and, and so like, yeah, that, that your death is like the worst possible thing, right? That's the worst thing there is. Um, and so to, to, have, to have salvation be a possibility is like, out of out of order um for tom riddle so i I found that that scene like their combat is cool and and fun and stuff but i found like his yeah what they say to each other is definitely um very powerful there yeah very much non-servion i will not serve or better to rule in heaven or in hell than to serve in heaven says the angel then tarnished glory uh milton satan and paradise lost book one and you know he literally becomes a snake too just as Voldemort now looks like a snake and has a snake familiar and very interesting again that connection to ugliness and the difference in in beauty but the big question I wanted I wanted to ask was um about the spells that they used uh both Dumbledore and and Voldemort and how those are representative of what you've just suggested um uh uh Wes are they in any way representative or also you Sarah too of um uh Voldemort's tendency to disintegrate not only his own soul but uh people and their uh from you know their the matter from their soul he kills people and he also tries to disintegrate communities through lies right he uh and controlling minds and through uh, turning people against each other and having them fight each other as if they are the enemies and turn on their own heroes like Harry Potter, who now I just wanted to note, he, he too, like Voldemort, it has his, like, honor, his name of honor. So just as Voldemort's power is acknowledged by calling them he who must not be named, but also is evil, uh, so is Harry called the boy who lived now again. And so he sort of has a return to glory for a moment, though it doesn't give him much happiness at the time that he receives it. But I did want to ask about the, um, we see at the very least a water spell. And then what other sorts of spells do we see in this fight? And what do you think that they mean, Sarah and Wes? I'm just, I'm going back and reviewing it at the moment. Um, This is like pages, 718, 719 for me, but could be different pages for y'all. Um, I'm in the British version. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is they uh, they use like the product of each other's magic and kind of turn it on one another. But I mean, just that pattern that you noted, Alex, that um, uh, it seems as though when Dumbledore is saying, um, 
your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. And then the, the, the centaur from the, um, uh, from the statue um, gallops in front of Dumbledore and, and takes the blast, a, a, a shot of green light for Dumbledore, which is similar, I think, to Fox taking um, one of the spells. Like there's, there's, there's things that, um, uh, there's things, things in the world that Dumbledore can like draw to himself to, um, like that offers him, offer him sacrifice, right? We saw, I think we saw that already at Hogwarts, like Firenze agreeing to serve the school at great cost to himself and his community, right? Um, and, you know, Fox has done this more than once, has given his current life for his, um, his master. I think if, 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 again, to apply like a Christological lens, that means Dumbledore can inspire a kind of like self-sacrificing love um, in people who are, and, and creatures that he accords with, with value, right? That's something he talks about with Harry later, the importance of like repairing what the magical world, ha the damage the magical world has done um, by like manipulating and using different uh, magical species and creatures for their own benefit and value. And that like, that's something that like a new era or a new age of magical rule and leadership is going to have to reckon with is and I to me that's like a super post-colonial comment um that like I I don't know I don't know where I'm going with that but anyway that's what I saw yeah I'm just yeah. reviewing that too yeah go on I wanted to throw out I mean the um the fight that Harry has with Bellatrix briefly there. Uh, he uses one of the, um, you know, unforgivable curses on her, right? And and he does it in such a way that it just makes her, um, like, angry, right? It doesn't really hurt her that much um, because he has the wrong sort of feeling behind it. And, and again, like, that seems to be, so that's, like, inspired by his love of Sirius, right? Like, that's the feeling that he puts behind the curse and so it doesn't really work. Um, the same thing I think happens. Um, so like Voldemort's sort of final attempt here is to possess Harry. That's like the last spell he uses in the duel is to possess Harry and tell Dumbledore to kill him using Dumbledore's own words against him, right? Death is nothing, kill the boy. Um, and that seems to be what is going through Harry's mind. But but then he thinks, I'll see Sirius again, and that seems to lift the spell. So it's like, there's a weird way that the sort of the feeling behind the spell um, seems to be as important as like the different spells themselves, is I guess what I would say. Yeah, it's almost like his willingness to die, his uh, allowing himself to be sacrificed is what dispels uh, Voldemort in that moment. But just back to the point that was made earlier about um, the emotion of Harry being his strength 
as opposed to Voldemort who hides from his emotion. Um, that is precisely what Harry denies in front of Dumbledore, though again, Dumbledore does not believe it in the same way that Bellatrix does not believe the Cruciatus curse that he casts, uh, perhaps out of personal pain rather than a pleasure in other people's pain. And perhaps that's why he's been forgiven for his outbursts, because he's not trying to hurt people. It's because he's hurting, and people recognize that. Um, and they hurt with him, like Hagrid will later on, um, when you know he comes and goes so quickly and gulps down his drink. But um, yeah, so that uh, the earlier question is the one that I'm actually, uh, I, I'm actually interested in considering though I'm starting to forget it in sort of a Theophilus Lovegood sort of fashion. The earlier question about, about the, the spell that what we... Yeah, um, that's the question I'm remembering too. I mean, I, I found it interesting that Dumbledore um, has this um, time with Harry that he sort of finally sets out kind of like a summary of all the books so far um, mm -hmm. but from his perspective right and so if we're sort of like getting to see Dumbledore's perspective that's uh, that's very like that's, that's highly privileged uh, information here and it's exactly what we haven't had throughout this whole book right which is part of what's made harry so mad all along is that he's been separated from dumbledore um to get this all kind of given to us all at once here i mean i think it i think it does work um but i found it quite uh yeah i, I think theatrical the way that dumbledore sort of constructs this discussion um he he has harry he's almost quizzing harry like do you see what i did wrong do you see the flaw yet um I found that really strange that he kind of phrases it that way and that he, you know, he takes blame for it, but still um, tries to sort of tell Harry like some of Sirius's flaws in this moment when Harry really can't hear that just yet. So what did you guys think of the way that, that Dumbledore has his duel with Harry Potter in the Lost Prophecy chapter? Um, well, I for sure made a connection between the, the review by Dumbledore with Harry to Cantus 21 and 22 of the Paradiso, where you have the literal planetary review on Saturn in the sphere of contemplation, climbing the golden ladder of information, which is, I, I would argue, um, the same analogy as the analogy of going out of the cave for Plato, uh, the allegory of the cave, and uh, deriving new information and then bringing it back into a place where you have to sort of fumblingly communicate it and it upsets people because again that that's that truth that upsets harmony um even if the harmony is based on lies and so i made that connection because of what dante does in the sphere of contemplation is he attains a higher perspective on his journey so far he has a moment in heaven that is like the purgatorial night where he gets to reflect on what has happened literally from a higher perspective on a ladder above the spheres he has covered so far, and he starts to see them in a new way, a more uh, a higher from a higher perspective, a more divine way, and that strikes me as correlate to now seeing these last several books from the perspective of Dumbledore, like you said, essentially like the perspective of somebody with a a higher perspective or like a divine perspective, like his uh, super eagle, the Phoenix Fox, 
that's sort of the connection I made. Sarah, what do you see? That's great. I, I'm not as familiar with the Paradiso as I am with the Inferno, but I love that idea that, um, that contemplation is taking the, the view of, of Providence. Um, yes. And right. Um, you know, you both know that like, I've spent a lot of my career in Ignatian education in particular, and I've, I know I've mentioned it multiple times in our conversations, the Ignatian concepts that I read in here. Um, but I, I too got, um, I thought it was interesting that, um, uh, I think my favorite thing about this is how, how difficult it is for Dumbledore to own what he considers are his weaknesses and how, how difficult it is for Harry to accept them. Right. Um, to me, this was, um, you know, on the one hand, I, 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 again, like I said, I have a hard time not seeing some of the Christological elements. I see this as kind of like a commissioning, um, uh, where, or like in order to know what you're called to do, um, there has to be some measure of study of where you've been, right? This, this to me is like a real conversion moment and it conversion doesn't happen immediately, right? It, it happens at least for St. Ignatius, it happened over the course of a very long convalescence after being injured in battle. And, um, he, uh, initially found, this injury to be an interruption in his life. Like it was going to keep him from being the courtly knight, um, the, the lover and the defender of the honor of the King that he so wanted to be in. Um, but what he over time painfully comes to learn is that the interruption in what he thought was his life or his life's plan was actually an invitation to something that he did not know would, would give him, um, satisfaction on a deeper level. So I, like, I read that this passage kind of as like, kind of like being in the hospital wing that like, but the hospital wing for your soul, right? That like Harry is not physically injured by, at least not badly by the um, scene in the ministry. Maybe that's because he was carrying the prophecy. So he didn't get like that terrible burn that Hermione gets. Right. Um, but he needs, serious recovery and um the recovery maybe isn't going to be at the hands of madame pomfrey pomfrey but it has to be at the hands of a healer of sorts and it, it's somebody maybe who can um divulge information to him answer some of his questions but i agree that the the chapter is really long and it feels like a lot is being explained for us that we could never have known without this chapter which I think is sometimes kind of annoying in a narrative where like uh, you get to the end and you're like, and it's like when a detective in a detective novel, when they like explain all of the stuff that like, there's no way you would have seen. Um, and because it is privileged, it feels like you're sort of trespassing on this, like, like therapeutic um, convalescence, I think. Um, and you have, I, I don't know. I see a lot of, like Ignatian elements in this. This is like a, um, like there's so much darkness and there's so much facing of darkness. And every time Harry seems to calm down, 
it turns right back around and he, um, you know, he gets even more angry and Dumbledore doesn't tell him not to be angry. I think that's my, that's another thing I really like is that he allows, he doesn't ever say like, sit down and shut up you little brat. Like he doesn't say like, stop yelling at me. Like Dumbledore takes it and it's like therapy for him. Um, but I, I think that, um, I, I find it effective mostly, honestly, like I think it answers a lot of questions, unanswered questions that I had when I first read the series. Like, I think that there's so much information that's delivered to us in this way. And I truly can't imagine another way for it to be delivered. Um, but it's almost like an invitation for Harry to, you know, um, like start a new mission, like, uh, and a mission that maybe you didn't think that you were made for, but that you don't have a choice for, I guess. Perhaps a second war. And that makes me think that the fight between Dumbledore and Voldemort is allegorically speaking, a fight over Harry's soul. And that is why he literally gets possessed at the end. And then just to make a connection to Harry hating, uh, um, um, Albus Dumbledore's human elements when he puts his head in his hands it's so human for suffering or tiredness and either way it's it's human and that's precisely what Voldemort seems incapable of accepting about himself and perhaps also about Dumbledore because it is the fact that sort of the light can shine through Dumbledore as a human that is such a critique of Voldemort's negating uh, dark being and you know he even shoots green uh, shots out of his wand, whereas uh, uh, Dumbledore shoots red and uh, sort of a Star Wars-like thing going there. Um, but also he tries to use killing curses, whereas Dumbledore, it, you know, Voldemort even comments, are you beyond that? But it makes me think that perhaps this this fight is a fight between good and evil in the soul of Harry after this new terrible thing has happened to him, after this awful year that there's just so much that's happened that he wants to deny his own humanity. And, you know, that is what he actually does in front of Dumbledore. That makes me recall my question from earlier that just just as we had said his emotions are his strength, he says, then I don't want to be a human if I have to deal with this. You know, uh, just to uh, to agree also with you, Sarah, right. the sort of presence of that suicide and negating element, and also that uh, necessity for truth to convert him, to bring him to a higher perspective so that this battle for his soul can be put to an end. Um, because it is as if it is finally finally boiling all over. And I, I do like that element of the headmasters of old being so disapproving of Harry's tone. They recognize that it is only because of the personal relationship between Dumbledore and Harry that this is allowed. Absolutely not if he's a student. I mean, they they certainly see this as a breach in his conduct. But like, like you also mentioned, Sarah, like... <laughs> Voldemort is very placid here, and I think he really shows his 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 symbolic nature. As you know, he has half moon glasses. He is, of course, silver. He is helping uh, uh, Harry reflect. You know, he's very much like the moon here in in its capacity as Dante's moon on the Purgatorio, as reflecting in order to bring somebody to a higher perspective as the way to battle the evil in someone's soul. I guess that's really what my question is. If you can interpret this in any way allegorically, um, what is the weapon that Dumbledore uses contra Voldemort to win this battle for Harry? 
or to bring him back to uh, you know the good side so that he, even though he has these same feelings as Voldemort, even rage at Dumbledore in the same way that he had had that rage earlier, but it had been Voldemort's. How is it that he brings him back to the boy who makes the choices that Voldemort did not? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I what? think part, part of what I'm seeing here, just like in terms of the storytelling process, so Dumbledore like apologizes for not having told uh, Harry sooner, right? And that has a lot of sort of objects. The thing that he didn't tell him sooner was that he is the subject of a prophecy. The thing that he didn't tell Harry sooner was that um, one or the one of the two of them has to die, right? He didn't tell him sooner that he uh, is like. Neville in some ways so there's like a lot of aspects of that but I think another part of what he didn't tell him soon enough was that he has that close relationship with him and that that has consequences right that's sort of like the thing that kept him from telling him all this stuff was because he cared about him too much right he admires him he he sort of loves him um and that's where he was especially I think like surprised at himself a little bit there is that he acted exactly as Voldemort expects we fools who love to act. Right. right. So like mm. he, he was weak in some way because of his love. And that's, that's so interesting that he has to sort of admit that um, to Harry here and sort of like argue or kind of present his case at least for why he did what he did. He, he apparently placed the charm on Harry which sort of combined with his mother's sacrifice. So in a way, he's, he's also responsible for keeping Harry alive at this point, by having him you know, safe at the, the Dursley's house these uh, 15 years or whatever. So that, that comes out here as well. Um, and, and so yeah. like the, the quality of his love is essentially um, you know, protective, but also has kept all this knowledge from him that's interesting to me because that's what, again, like what's not happening in this chapter is that we're, we're not having anything kept from us. We're having everything told to us. Um, that's what mm -hmm. makes the story work the rest of the time is that we don't know what's going to happen next. We want to find out, you know? And so it's a weird way in which like, I think the storyteller is saying like, you know, I really care about you. I want you to like learn something from the story or like see something important as uh, a, a learning process and so I had to do it this way like forgive me for yeah. this chapter um I don't know that no I I, I agree there's I, a no go for it sorry I interrupted no I was just gonna say I think we'll see this again at the end of um whenever it is that Vol mm -hmm. or, sorry that Dumbledore drinks the cup to its dregs you know it's it's sort of the same thing going on again there like yeah. the exposure of himself as weak, you mean? Like, um, like the the humbling of himself. Is that what what you think is the pattern, or yeah, the basically. storytelling technique? Yeah. Well, I think I there. Yeah. I was just gonna say, like, at the end of chap, at the end of the seventh book, I know we'll see like a little bit more expository explanation of what happened, right? Um. But I think it, I think you're right, Wes, to point out that like 
unlike previous storytelling experiences throughout this story, like everything is kind of being backwards explained for us from a different perspective, like to show us maybe to like point us to a couple key themes or ideas. And it's a little bit moralizing, but um, like it's, it's such a divergence from the way that the story has worked, like us being just as in the dark about things as the, 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 the kids are that it seems like we're being ushered into or like baptized into a new sense of, of, of gravity, right? Like um, given new knowledge, but not given new knowledge and nothing to do with it, right? Like um, you're being he, like Harry and the reader are being invited into a deeper, if they're being given this global view, if they're being given this kind of the view of Providence, like as you said, Alex, from like the raised ladder, well, like a contemplative doesn't stay there, right? I mean, well, maybe some contemplatives right. do, but but you don't, I mean, like with this knowledge, you don't get to just like rest on your laurels, right? I think part of, part of the thing that I didn't like about this chapter is that he starts with, here's why I didn't tell you this, books one, two, three, and four, mostly because like, A, every single reason he gave for not telling them is totally valid. So not, not in need of an apology, but B, like, um, you're telling now, so don't apologize for not doing it earlier. I, I don't know. But um, developmentally, like, what he's asking of Harry is not appropriate before this moment, right? Uh, not in any way. I mean, not really appropriate for a 16-year-old anyway, but, like, um, to be given special knowledge, like, special insight and special care, right? To, like, you know, the com like you mentioned, the combination of the you know, Dumbledore's charm and his mother's sacrifice, damn, if that isn't just a little bit like, uh, you know, Mary and, and God or whatever. But I think the thing that Dumbledore does when he lowers himself or humbles himself or weakens himself is he, he um, invites people into that as well. Um, and so like, um, it's, it's sort of hokey, but like when you, when you allow yourself to be vulnerable or broken and exposed, it invites other people to do the same rather than to try and present himself as powerful and in control and like above everybody else. That's, there's no way to build a team that way. There's no way to build a community that way. There's no way to build like an effective partnership that way. Um, and I think the other thing that he does, that Voldemort doesn't like to your question earlier, West about or not West, um, Alex about wep the weapon that he wields with Harry is um, that, that that along with the knowledge comes freedom, but not freedom to avoid things um, or to be free from things, but freedom to choose a certain kind of path, like um, to to choose to be the thing that you were made for. Um, you can only make that choice fully if you are if you are fully informed I guess um and up to that point anything Harry was doing was something that both that Dumbledore had gone out of his way to kind of orchestrate right um and to set set up so that Harry would would and could find success where whereas I think what he what he realized I think one of the things that made me sad the most or actually kind of teared up at this point was when he said that 
um, it's easy when you're old to forget what it's like to be young and that I'm an, I've made the mistakes of an old man, right? That like, um, maybe he himself is feeling his mortality and that like, he needs to put Harry in a position to freely choose without his guidance, the right path. And like, that gift is what I think is, a, is, I think is the only weapon that he has at his disposal because anything else wouldn't be a full choice. I don't know if that, I don't know if that really makes any sense. I completely but. agree and just have some different words to say the exact same thing. And also Dante would totally agree with your idea on the fact that humans have a contingent will that is based that, you know, they can choose to parallel with the absolute will of God in order to live out their fate. And that's the so-called good life for Dante. And um, that you, one doesn't have the freedom to do or to redefine one's morality, but one does have the freedom of whether to live up to one's destiny or not. And uh, just, it's so interesting, Wes, that you, you're sort of making these connections to sort of life as a mystery that can't be unlocked in the same way that tree, the tree of life is a tree from which we cannot eat. And then an even potentially older story, the Gilgamesh story, uh, the tree or the plant of life is that which is denied to Gilgamesh. So again, that is the ultimate mystery that we just can't unlock. But also you seem to be um, mentioning the, the tree of knowledge here as well um and talking about um that which dumbledore reveals but also how how it is knowledge and sarah you were saying this too that sort of unlocks the boundaries in which you have found yourself and then you go out and are free to explore somewhere new but you are not free to return to the world that you once lived in cherubim now sort of guard that time has entered in you know you're in the desert now you have to seek out your new Troy, your your new Ithaca, your new Jerusalem. Um, but just another biblical connection, just another Old Testament one that I see here, or well, also a Buddhist one based on that story of the Buddha I told you all about his father keeping him in a walled garden, a paradiso, is I see also Dumbledore doing that or having done that to Harry and sort of uh, asking to be forgiven for the noble lie, so-called, that Harry was too young, so he was kept in the Dursleys, a walled garden, a place where he can be safe. And then in Hogwarts, another walled garden, a place that keeps him safe, but not fully informed. And so now it's time to inform him of just how vulnerable he really is and of just how much uh, Dumbledore has helped him. He has to break down those walls now in order to expand Harry's perspective, but that's going to cause Harry, of course, tremendous pain, but also give him the opportunity uh, through going through that pain to uh, show his human sort of dignity, his human worth, because it's, it's in expanding his perspective that he will turn, uh, attain the clarity of thought necessary to continue progressing forward on um, the, the path of good. But I, I also wanted to mention on that, uh, and I think that connects back to the theme of truth disrupting harmony and having to restore a new harmony after that, but then again, you know, always searching for a new Ithaca, new unexplored territory. But that, that also, the wall metaphor also ties to J.K. Rowling, what she's doing as a storyteller here. You made me think of this, Wes, where, um, you know, she has invited us into this walled garden, right? This place where we cannot be hurt in this literature, though, though what we actually literally read mm. here, that thoughts can hurt you. And so, she breaks her own wall in order to ingest 
you know, to give us some serious emotion and some serious consideration about death here. Like this is a, like a taking off of the third wall and an invitation of us into the pain of this world or a paralleling of the pain of losing and mm. Harry. If we've just been riding along, sharing in his highs and highs, it's time to pay the piper and feel the lows and lows with him too, if we're going to identify with them. Mm. I feel like this is how she really starts to fill him in as a character. And like you both were suggesting, how she starts to sort of instigate character growth in us as well through making us mm. confront again death and the fact that it keeps happening and that it is not easier to deal with this time. Um, and uh, especially in the wake of that comic element that you've been mentioning, Wes, all the more unexpected. And that's so funny because I just started teaching uh, Oedipus, and I'm talking about the difference between comedy. Well, you know, I teach the Divine Comedy, and I'm still teaching that. I should be finished soon, but also teaching this tragedy with the Oedipus, and those are like the two ways of looking at life. Like you were saying earlier, you're like putzing around, thinking nothing matters, and then bam, something happens that makes you realize everything matters. It's like those walls come crumbling down in that moment, and then you, like a spider, have to sort of. I don't know if make them stronger, but certainly expand them and alter what it all looks like seems necessary. And that, that I also see as a connection to what you made as a point last time, Sarah, about how um, the first four years uh, or first uh, five years of Hogwarts could be like high school and the last two years like college uh, after the OWLs. It's like, yes, everything is far more serious now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that point a lot. I mean, in the way that Dumbledore's talking, you know, second person, it's hard not to hear his words as being in some way directed at the reader too, right? You were too young, you were too mm -hmm. young. I can tell you right. everything, but now I can tell you everything and you like have to um, understand why I didn't make you a prefect. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and that and, and we first, were denied that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that same phrase, I found this kind of strange too. Like, Madame Pomfrey uses almost the exact same words. Um, it's some kind of like uh, expression, like you had enough to be going on with, right? Um, she uses that like two pages later in, in the chapter where we hear how she sort of like fixed everybody back up again. Um, and I, I, I thought that was kind of a curious echo. I don't know how intentional that was on Rowling's part, but I, I'm inclined to think it was probably, you know, pretty purposeful. Like, like you're saying, right? Like they go through a physical healing, Harry goes through a kind of mental and emotional, um, or at least like initiates the healing process um, for him. And, and I guess, you know, I, like that's, that's kind of what we're all engaged in, I guess, as, as readers too. Yeah. I think um, one thing that I, that I really liked in the last chapter, um, like Harry's healing isn't over, right? Um, he gets, he has this conversation with Dumbledore and, you know, by the end, there's a lot of quiet. It doesn't really seem like there's a lot of forgiveness. There doesn't really seem like a lot of, um, like any, any peace or harmony is truly achieved really, you know, but, um, that scene where he he and Luna kind of bond a little bit about what they've experienced in terms of grief. Um, and she so awkwardly is like, oh, yeah, Ginny told me he was your godfather, right? Like, I'm sorry, you know, um, that 
that's something that we've what we've seen all year in for Harry is that he cannot figure out how to in a healthy way allow people to be with him while he's broken and for a while it was about Cedric and it was about his own role in the rise of Voldemort again and it was um, his impotence at saving someone who in many ways was on paper better than him his confusion as to why you're surviving why nobody believes him blah 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 but like every time people tried to understand he kind of barked at them right he just couldn't couldn't figure out how to be vulnerable and and I don't know I'm not saying that Dumbledore being vulnerable with him in one chapter makes him more vulnerable with another character in another but I do think that that is like like leaning into um our weaknesses as a way of like building um healthy effective community especially in contrast to the death eaters where what they harp on is their strength and they do not brook weakness and weakness is to be punished and uh there's like dominion and power and you know when bellatrix fails she basically she like throws herself at the feet of uh at the feet of of Voldemort at the at the ministry whereas i don't know the the order of the phoenix and dumbledore's leadership thereof and it it really seems to present like a different look of a community or a different team um i don't know setup and that conversation that he has with luna is like this time where he he doesn't really need to fake who he is um he doesn't need to run away even he runs away from hagrid so he, hagrid doesn't see him cry he doesn't want to be around ron and hermione right but like he's cool being around luna and acknowledging that like yeah that was my godfather and um do you sometimes think about your mom and it's like it's like these he's just now taking these baby steps to bond with other people in like shared suffering right and use and you know i think like being able to name your own suffering allows you to better see it in other people and maybe be a little more empathetic um just you know like trauma that goes under under addressed or unaddressed at all is so often the root cause of future trauma um you know long story short everybody should be in therapy but um <laughs> I, 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 this, that conversation, that long chapter with Dumbledore really on the other end of it, it really seems like spiritual direction slash therapy. That's what I think it is. Slash, uh, remedial lesson. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting my exact point that I wanted to say in reference to that but i i do completely agree that it, it is like a therapy because if if you know the author is going to wound us then it's best if we're given uh, an attempt mm. an antidote but oh yes that's what i was going to say is that it's interesting also in the comment that uh when you suffer it produces the opportunity for new relationships and new connections to people because of course something that uh harry shares with luna is that they have both lost people close to them and so they can speak very frankly about that and so that draws him to her and also 
allows him. Uh, and I think it's so interesting, Hermione just showing that she knows Harry as well as Voldemort does, that he has a hero thing. And that's exactly what Lucius Malfoy says lured him down into the Department of Mysteries. He has a great weakness for heroics, Malfoy says. Um, and we didn't get to talk about him too much, unfortunately, or maybe it's best just leave him unnamed. But, um, but uh, it, it seems interesting that Harry is also given a chance of, for heroics with Luna here, like a small one, like, why are people messing with you? And I also thought that was sad, even though I was already very sad because of Sirius's death, sad in a different way, sort of a pitiful way, the same way that Harry or the, the narrator describes it, that Harry's feeling of pity intensifies when he hears that Luna gets messed with not only just this time, but all the time. And um, mm -hmm. how that was part of, was that part of him uh, overcoming the grief process and that he is speaking frankly and that he's focusing on different things or, or, or what's happening there exactly? And then I, I suppose we have to close because it's getting pretty late here. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. Every, everything that's lost is gonna turn up like it always does. She, she's she's got, hmm. got a kind of optimistic note for the end of the book there. And, um, you know, they also give the Dursleys a stern talking to, so that, that bodes well for Harry's hmm. summer, right? Yes, every three days. So now, now he can be in communication again, like the point you made there, Sarah, that, um, you know, bringing people together is Voldemort's mm -hmm. weakness, is Voldemort's weakness, is Albus Dumbledore's gift and power and just connect that to the name of the book the order of the phoenix and new beginning and even fox who <laughs> literally gets uh does he does he get skinned and then he's just pretty stubby and gross looking um <laughs> and and then he returns to the headmaster's office when uh you know albus dumbledore returns to all of his offices including arch uh, uh warlock or, or highest warlock in the wisengamot mm -hmm. um but it's as if uh, the true order or proper order is being restored in this book, uh, finally. Um, and well, I'm really looking forward to the Half-Blood Prince with uh, you two. It's so funny. Sarah, yeah. I was just reading, reading an article that Wes wrote that was a transcription of a talk we had over the summer, early summer. And in that talk, we were talking about trying to convince you to do this project. And now look how far we've come. Speaking of time. No way. What, where's this article? Uh, it's, uh, I can send you the link. It's on a, a video game journalism webpage. Oh. Um, yeah. I think yeah. I, did you post about this? I think yeah, I, I think saw I it. it on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. well, it's really cool to see an idea go from conception to reality in this way and so perhaps Dumbledore is bringing all of us together as well um, I'm looking forward to another another interesting book with our favorite half-blood Harry and this soon to be named uh, or perhaps late to be named parallel if it is not Harry himself dun, dun, dun. Hey yeah. sounds good until next time, y'all. All right. Salud. All right. Cheers. Cheers, y'all. Sleep well. Take it easy. Take care. You too. Bye.